Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-hosts Shane Douglas Keen and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're going to be talking to Caitlin Snarling, the author of The Luminous Dead. So how are you doing tonight, Caitlin? Pretty good. How about you? Yeah, we're all doing pretty good. We're uh, really excited to have you on the show. Um, we've all read uh, The Luminous Dead. Um, I read it I think like around when it came out or a little bit before. And then um, Shane, he's the most uh, recent convert. I do. Yeah, I did see Shane yelling about it on Twitter. So <laughs> and <laughs> always I, my favorite thing. And I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm still going. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I finished the book, but oh, I'm not okay. Okay. Done talking I about like, oh, it. Gosh, we're going to have to talk around some stuff. But OK, if you're not, you're not finished yelling, that's fine. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i couldn't put that damn thing down once i picked it up you were like a curse to me for two days <laughs> curse. <sighs> but uh yeah um we uh we usually start the show off just by kind of doing like the uh new kid at school speech so i guess if you just wanted to tell um listeners you know a little bit about yourself and uh you know what kind of you know books you write i know the luminous dead is out now but maybe some of the other stuff you've done just kind of what you're uh what kind of genres you're attracted to and stuff like that yeah so the luminous dead was my first book came out april of last year from harper voyager and i've got a couple more that are coming out in the next couple years um the first is an unnamed project that I'm not allowed to talk about, but is supposedly coming out in like June. So awesome. <laughs> and I on my Twitter, hopefully we're going to be announcing that shortly. Um, then in September, I have a novella Gothic horror novella coming out with neon hemlock, which is this great queer horror press um, called yellow Jessamine. Um, and I think we're probably gonna talk about that one more later. So I'll move on. And then next fall so in 2021 if we're all still around um i have a, another gothic horror full-length novel called the death of jane lawrence coming out from st martin's press and i've also done uh weird things like i was the narrative designer for an immersive body parts store in new york a couple falls ago called a human um and i've got a couple other sort of interactive fiction things in the works that's pretty interesting um like you said that you kind of have like these interactive uh things going on and um it seems like that's starting to become kind of kind of something that's starting to happen more like in the horror genre like i know um i can't remember the title offhand i think it's the dark factory but i know kathy uh koja is kind of doing some stuff with that too and um i was wondering like what like appeals to you about that sort of like interactive experience and kind of like meshing it with your stories well so far my interactive stuff and most of it again has not been announced i'm living in limbo um is actually not horror and it's been interesting because the reason i'm getting hired for these things is because i know how close i have a good sense of how close i can get to horror before it starts making people check out um particularly that body that body part store um yeah. i was like do you guys want to rebo the genetic opera vibe and they were like first off what's that and it was okay <laughs> doing a body shop store without watching that movie but okay um but they were like no no we want it to be more like going to the apple store and i'm like okay we're gonna have to do some fun things then to make disembodied body parts not freak people out um <laughs> yeah. so and then yeah the other two things i'm working on one is sort of a wartime 
choose your adventure type story, not with choose your adventure because they're very uh, patent trademark happy. They like suing, um, but different, different yeah. thing. And another one is more like contemporary fantasy. Um, but what I really like about interactive stuff, aside from, you know, having grown up on video games and choose your adventure books is that you get to deal a lot with sort of asking the reader to come with you in a slightly more intimate way than you would normally. Um, I did a talk at the Nebulous Conference last year about consent in interactive fiction and interactive media like that, and I uh, ended up talking a lot about, and I don't know if you guys have played it, but the game Doki Doki Literature Club. No, I haven't heard of it. Which is free and looks like a dating sim and is absolutely not a dating sim, and the warnings are very... <laughs> They, they are honest, and you should read them before you play it, because it is incredibly, incredibly freaky. It is a horror game. It just happens to look like a dating sim. Awesome. Um, and not only is there the sort of normal dating sim interactive stuff, there are things in the story, um, mild spoiler, but they you, the person playing the video game, are kind of also a character besides the character that you're ostensibly playing. Um, the game is a little bit self-aware, which... Is very it, it will freak people out, especially if, if they don't always, you know, if sometimes they're not sure what's real and what's not. You put a game like that in front of somebody and you really do want to warn them ahead of time just because it can get a little bit intense. Um, highly recommend yeah. that game. But yeah, that sort of space where interactive fiction seems to be able to push people's buttons in different ways. Yeah, and that that's a really good point. And uh, I definitely want to check out that game. But yeah, it's it's a really cool idea like i said the only things like um that i've really seen that's kind of taken on like a bigger role is uh you know kathy koja's thing that she's working on but to a lesser extent i know like paul tremblay did a short story um kind of like that and then one of our prior guests uh brian kirk he was he had a cool idea for his most recent novel where he was going to make it almost like uh like a mad lib sort of thing where like Ooh. you would you would buy the ebook and then it would kind of like put details about you in the story. But he's like, yeah, that would have been like a legal nightmare, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, basically he wanted, he wanted to stalk about half of America. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there a, wasn't there um it was like a, in a website that I think it was supposed to be like awareness raising about how easy it is to cyber stalk somebody, but it was, it has something to do with lollipops or something, but it would basically, taunt you and say that it could find where you live and if you kept playing it it would basically just be coming through your facebook and everything else like you had to say like accept a couple of things on it but i know that like, yeah. panicked a ton of people um but I, I like that mad libs idea and then i know carmen maria machado did there is a very brief section in um in the dream house that is interactive in a very neat way um, there are sections of it that you cannot get to by making any choices. Like you have to be cheating to see some of the story, uh, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny you mentioned that because I feel like, um, like I used to read a lot of those, uh, sort of books, uh, particularly the like goosebumps ones when I was mm -hmm. younger and, I'll admit I was never one of the ones that would just like read it and like make the decision and do it. Like I tried to like cheat and like read mm -hmm. all the different things. So that's kind of a cool little element to throw in there. Yeah. I just, I love stuff that sort of is aware of 
it's designed with an awareness of how people actually interact with media instead of how we want them to interact with media and has little, at the very least, little Easter eggs to be like, yeah, I can tell that you cheated to get here because then suddenly yeah. you, you feel very seen and like you got caught out doing something. Um, <laughs> but I like not just punishment type stuff like that, but anything that sort of rewards exploration, like in the, the body shop thing, um, in a human, there were certain areas of the set that if you sought them out, there were actually more, they were creepier than the rest of the store. So they added, they answered some questions that, you know, maybe a surface level um, read wouldn't raise. But if you had any sort of like, I'm wondering about the ethics of this, you could dig a little bit deeper. Um, and those were my favorite parts to, to design. Yeah, I was looking, um, you mentioned that and I was like, oh my gosh. So I, I was just going through your website, looking at the pictures of that. I'm, I mean, that's, I, I feel like I need to know more. I mean, how did this, uh, so this, was this a, was this a, dis, I mean, uh, like, was this like an art display is what this was or? Kind of. Um, I'm trying, I'm blanking on the main person's name. Um, the, the special effects artist name. So give me one second to do some Googling, but, um, yeah, I was kind of tapped out of the blue by just this guy had, had been to a lot of those, you know, fancy Instagram rooms and, um, had wanted to do something more interesting and less surface level with it. Okay. I think her name is Laura Dandridge. Um, she was the winner of that face off competition that was on sci-fi mm-hmm. channel for a while oh yeah um yes yeah okay and so we ended up hiring her kind of late into the process which is kind of backwards to how i would have thought we would do it but yeah so they had he had this idea that he wanted it to be um simon huck the guy who was running it wanted it to be some kind of store where you could swap out body parts but he didn't want it to be horror and he didn't want it to be based on discomfort of like oh i want i want a bigger rack oh i want a bigger dick like he didn't want that um and so he was looking for artists who were willing to go in other directions which was surprisingly hard to find um laura totally got it because we ended up taking in the direction of a fashion brand and it just being a totally transhumanist do whatever you want with your body and you can go beyond the limits of what's what looks like it's human, and it's still awesome. This, I mean, the aesthetics on this are incredible. Yeah, That's, and like and he, he rented out a whole like whole store area in Soho during Fashion Week. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we had the showroom <laughs> that you would come in, and there'd be a, like an entryway room, and there would be a video of the you know fictional founder of this company kind of giving you an overview of everything. And then you would be unleashed into this room that was mostly dark with like gravel paths and lots of natural plant type things. And then these very cyberpunk displays of sculptures. But some of the sculptures were just lifelike sculptures and some of them were actually on models. But you couldn't necessarily tell the difference at a glance until the model moved. (laughs) So like most people could tell which ones were models, but some of the ones that weren't, people were like unsure. And we had one where it's a guy who's, it looks like a guy who's face down in this gravel pit showing off this, this back sculpture. And we had a woman come up to one of the security people and be like, okay, I didn't think that was an actual model, but now I'm not sure. Cause I swear I saw his foot move. Is he okay? Is he comfortable in that position? <laughs> <laughs> Which we loved. Um, yeah. 
And so we also did it so that the staff was trained. At first, we tried to have sort of audience plants of actors who would pretend to just be people visiting the the experience, but with a little bit of in-world knowledge so they can strike up conversations. But um, no one wants to talk to a rando who comes up to them in a show in New York. So that didn't work. But they did want to talk to all the security people who were not actors. So we swapped it and made all the security people actors. And so because they were authority figures, they could explain things. And it was just really cool. Kind of we were just tweaking things as it as it went. I think it ran for maybe just a little bit over a month. Um, It was super cool. And it was Simon, the guy who runs it, has has intense connections like Kim Kardashian did something about it on her Instagram. Like she had, we, we applied like a whole like sculpted latex necklace to her that looked like skin that had LEDs embedded in it. And people thought it was real and got really upset. Um, (laughs) And Chrissy Teigen had these beautiful, like sculpted flesh feathers on her chest and Tan France did a, did another thing, but you know, there was this whole firestorm on, social media. It was very brief, but when it happened, it was like, Oh my God, you guys are all sick. What's wrong with you? This is disgusting. (laughs) And like some of it spilled over onto me, even though I was barely publicly connected with it, it was really wild of just how strong people's reactions to reactions were to seeing stuff like that and just not trusting that it was fake. Yeah. I, um, when Laurel said that she was looking at it, I just took a look at it and it's very cool. Like I kind of wish that it was like a permanent thing so that I could, uh, you know, go yeah. check it out. Yeah. There's been some talk about doing it again. Um, we learned a lot doing it the first time. The way that we did it was, um, a little bit expensive to put on <laughs> regularly. Um, <laughs> turns out doing all of that special effects makeup every single day takes a lot of staff. Um, you can't just sort of put it on like a costume. It has to be professionally applied every day and everything else. Um, but, but we've learned and we've also learned what people didn't really like. Um, and one of the things is we did it very much as a exploration room with, with kind of a story, but not really like it didn't take you through a narrative as you went through the rooms. And we found a lot of people basically being like, I want this to have more story. I'm interested in the characters that I've heard mentioned. I want to know more. So if we get to do another one, maybe I'll get to like, you know, come up with a, a not like an intense story, um, but just something that kind of strings everything together and gets gets gives people things they can latch onto and talk about later as opposed to just cool sculpture. That would be awesome because it's I mean, it's visibly stunning already. And then to add a storyline like that would be, I think, really cool. Yeah. yeah, we had a we had a cool discussion about like a kind of a central repeating um, event that we might that we thought about doing, which was showing using some stage magic applications of those modifications to people, um, which I really wish we'd done. That would have been so cool. But it and was another worked. thing of we had to brainstorm how to make that not horrific to watch somebody get their flesh distorted, <laughs> <laughs> and we landed on spa treatments. Oh, that's because, beautiful. Yeah, spot treatments yeah. hurt, but they're worth it, and everyone's comfortable about them. Yeah, they're very accepted for that. That's brilliant. So fingers crossed, we'll get to do another one. Um, slightly less Instagram room, slightly more theater. Yeah, that would be really cool. Because, um, like I said, I I looked at it, and it looks awesome. And I've never I've never seen or experienced anything like that, but it looks like it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Um, it, we, we were part of what we were inspired by too. And I think part of why I got picked to work on it was I was already familiar with this. There is a show in New York called sleep no more, which is a three hour show loosely inspired by Macbeth. That is, it loops three times throughout the night. There's no actual dialogue and you as an audience member are just set free on a five story set. It's an old warehouse they've converted and the characters move room, the actors move room to room so you can follow them or you can stay and look through like the desk drawers of somebody and find more story stuff. Um, and it's a ghost story and, you know, very, very bloody because Macbeth um, and everyone in the audience wears a mask and is not allowed to talk. And it's just so like kind of meaty and creepy, but also engaging. And the fact that, you know, you can stay, I've gone, I pretty much go every time I visit New York. So I've gone like four times now which is a little bit ridiculous, but <laughs> I still find stuff I haven't seen before. Oh, it's fascinating. I because it's how. not a linear story. Yeah. I have never felt so Kentucky in all my life. Like, just <laughs> 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 stuff was out there. <laughs> there's, there's, um, there's a company called Meow Wolf that does interactive rooms, and I think they're mostly based out of New Mexico. Um, I haven't done any, I haven't gone to any of theirs, but I know they do similar short run type stuff like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool, and uh, I'm kind of jumping around because I was gonna kind of ask you, you know, like the, uh, the, the kind of the path of the uh, Luminous Dead and like how oh, yeah. you got in touch with uh, Harper Voyager. But hearing about this uh, art installation, and I'm not sure if maybe the Luminous Dead was already mostly written by then, but it kind of made me think of like. Were there any connections between that project and some of the stuff in the Luminous Dead? Like kind of how, uh, and I, I hope you can correct me with how to pronounce her name, but uh, <laughs> Gear, Gyre, Gyre, like, like gyrate or gyroscope. Um, okay. But pretty much everyone thinks it's Gear. So yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, we we kind of saw that coming, and then we're like, oh, whatever, it'll it'll be fine. And then I think. <laughs> I, I think I found one person who just organically pronounced it the same way. So I had it. I had that uh, when I was a little kid. I had a stuffed elephant named Gyro Gearloose, so I knew exactly what the <laughs> name was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I was just. Oh, uh, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> no, I was just curious because, like, uh, kind of like how she uh, feeds, like when she's in the suit and like they have oh, yeah. like those ports i didn't know if maybe working on that um art project kind of like inspired that or other way around so um i sold the luminous dead to harper voyager and i think it was august of 2017 and i was hired to do a human in the spring of 2018 so um some time had passed and pretty much all the editing had been finished and I was desperate for more work. So <laughs> I was very excited when that showed up. But um, the the way she actually feeds herself, that was pretty much um, just a logistical solution because I knew I wanted her in the suit because otherwise she couldn't be alone in a cave. It, she would just die. <laughs> so yeah. um, she would need support staff otherwise. So I was going to put her in the suit and then I was like, well, how would she eat? And my rule is when I solve a problem, when I come up with a solution to a problem to make something in the writing easier, it has to make life harder for the character. So I was like, okay, she could just have cans of beans that she heats up 
but I don't want her to be starting fires so she can't cook food. And I don't want her to be able to open her mask because that makes everything worse. So she can't eat through the mask. And I'm like, okay, feeding tube success. Cool. Um, and the waste removal element of that came because actually um, a family member of mine was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so that is one of the treatments is you get some stuff removed and rearranged. But so I did some research on it and found out that those can be reversible, which is the freakiest thing ever and uh, mm-hmm. solved all my problems. So <laughs> it solved my problems and made Jire's life worse. So it was a perfect solution for the book. Um, but that also meant that, you know, by the time I got to doing a human, I had my first drafts of ideas were a lot more um, before we decided on the fashion brand angle were a lot more functional like here's the liver extender it's a second liver you can plug in with, after a night of partying and it and it makes it so you don't have a hangover the next day you just put it on a washstand the next day and it cleans it out for you so it's ready for the next night um, much more reboot the genetic opera style of fixing everything uh, I, with, I need one of those right <laughs> right I really like that I'm really sad that didn't stay around but I guess it also was promoting bad habits so Instead, we have neck frills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I still find the kidney thing a little bit more appealing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, I'm I'm um just kind of in listening into your like you know your problem solving uh, method here and in, in when you're writing it, I'm I was really curious. You know, so you pro- I'm sure you've probably been asked this before about the caving. Like, so how familiar were you with it? Or was this something that you researched? Something that I researched. I read a lot of books um, The first by, by cavers. The first one that I was called, um, I think it was, oh gosh, Beyond the Deep, I think was the first one. Um, and it's about a caving exploration in Mexico in 1994 with Bill Stone and Barbara Amendi. And that that is where I learned a lot about the fact that rebreathers exist and they can go horribly wrong. <laughs> and also about sort of the strain that a major caving expedition like that puts on a person. So, you know, one of the one of the kind of go to factoids to freak people out is that if you're in a cave for multiple days and you're exploring you're going to be losing up to about a pound and a half of body weight a day just because of the amount of stress you're under and the amount of physical work you're doing and the fact that your circadian rhythms are just totally screwed up because if you're not working, you turn off your lights because otherwise you run out of battery or other fuel for your lamps. So when you're at rest, you are in total darkness, which means, you know, you might sleep for two hours at a time. You might sleep for 16 hours at a time. Um, And it also tends to cause major panic attacks, even in people who have done it before. Um, They call it the rapture, which is the greatest name. But you'll just start panicking and hallucinating. And usually it goes away. But sometimes it doesn't, and they need to pull you out. But also, if you ever get injured in a cave or die in a cave, it's really, really dangerous to take you out for everyone else. And so a lot of the time, like, okay, if you're injured, they're probably going to try and get you out. If you're dead, they might just leave you. Um, that's a very common thing, and usually they only kind of take you out if, say, you're an 18-year-old who was doing something really stupid and died in a cave, and your parents get really upset and make the entire team go back down and get you. <laughs> Not that that's happened in real life, 
multiple times to people. Um, <laughs> I kind of I'm like, eh, it's, I can understand it from the parents' point of view, but also, God, that just risks the people's lives so much. And needlessly, and they're already interred. They're already below the ground. Um, but there's a whole story. Another book I read, um, which I am blanking on the name even more, but it is it covers uh, Cheve Cave, another cave in Mexico, and Krubera, which is in Ukraine. And the Krubera expedition involved a guy breaking his spine, I think, on a fall. Damn. But they got him and his and shattered his jaw, but he lived. And they got him out with a combination of a lot of, I want to say, ketamine and dynamite. Oh, but they did get him out. <laughs> that sounds crazy. <laughs> Took the brute yeah. force approach. <laughs> um, and it's it's interesting, too, to me, because, you know, the first approach of, you know, on, on American and North American caving expeditions and U.S.-led caving expeditions, you have a lot less um, willingness to change the cave to make it easier to get through because, you know, or even to save anybody. Whereas you go to um, Russian and Ukrainian caving issue, you know, caving expeditions and yeah, they'll just, they'll just fix stuff. (laughs) They'll just change stuff. Um, Which is pretty intense. Yeah, it is, because I don't think that would even be legal here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, and then there's also the, um, also during my research, there is the story of, oh gosh, I want to get his name right, Floyd Collins in um, Sand Cave, which I think is in the near Mammoth Caves. Yeah, Mammoth Cave National Park. And... He got, he went caving alone, never do that, and he got caught in in a collapse, and they tried to get him out for like two weeks or something like that, including the Army Corps of Engineers got called, who then made everything worse by blowing up the wrong parts of the cave, and he eventually, you know, his brother would just go into this hole he was stuck in every day and like feed him, I think it was coffee and sausages, which sounds great. (laughs) And then it collapsed on him, and, and by the time they, they dug him out again, he had died. Um, and uh, the book, the name of the second book that I completely blanked on is called Blind Descent. So That's, That is intense, but I can really see why. Yeah. I mean, honestly, reading it, I was like, okay, so Caitlin Starling is a, is a veteran uh, cave, cave, caver. Yeah. He clearly oh, God, has no. been through them a number of times. <laughs> I don't I mean, go in there. Just, but, it's, it's just incredible. For it feels that way, but yeah, no, never. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> Especially not now. Um, after yeah. after Illuminous had came out, like I think in June of last year or something, a book came out by a woman named Jill Heinerth called Into This Planet, and she is a professional cave diver. And it is a very good book, highly recommended. She narrates her own audiobook. Um, but there are certain things where she's describing it and she's just like, I mean, yeah, I almost died, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you do this for fun? Yeah, Uh, I don't get that. I don't get that. It's like I can, I've been in a couple of caves and I'm fine with that, but you, you put water into the mix. I don't want to swim around in caves. I I was, I was talking with, um, I think it was, 
Adrian Buskey over on Fictitious Podcast, and it turned out he all he loved going in caves, but he was in one with some friends once where they were like waist deep in water and they're walking along like a, a tunnel, and he stepped forward and just fell straight down under the water. Oh, into a pit. Yeah, they got him out. Obviously, um, I was not being interviewed by a ghost, which would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should have made doing things together at San Diego Comic Con a little bit harder. Um, but yeah, it basically was just like, how are you not dead? That sounds like you die when that happens. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it was only like a two foot deep drop, so it took his head underwater, but he could just pop back up. Um, but he kept going into caves after that too. So I don't know. I don't know why people do these things. So honestly, the hardest part was figuring out how to write Gyre in such a way that you believed that she liked going down there when things weren't horrific. And yet you should manage to show the side that's not so likable, too, as far as the kind of psychological and emotional shit that can happen to you while you're down there. You know? Yeah. Really not great. Yeah, and um, that's kind of uh, one of the things that I really liked about this book, and I'm sure part of it probably ties into some real-world stuff, like kind of how you described, like, the suit and, like, some of the cave stuff. But one of the many things that I loved about the book was just, like, the world-building, like her home planet, the caves themselves, the, like, wildlife she comes across and i was just wondering like it's kind of like a hybrid novel but do you have like an interest in both sci-fi and horror and like what um what kind of inspired you to do a story like the luminous dead that kind of blends that stuff together yeah i mean i generally like writing science fiction or fantasy or just generally like non-contemporary stuff um a lot of it being also horror in some way but some of it not a lot of that is because I like to have the freedom to make up any details that I want. Um, I Otherwise, I feel like I'm studying for a test that I'm absolutely going to fail because I'm going to describe something wrong about the real world that, you know, half of my readers do every day. Um, for The Luminous Dead, it is science fiction because, A, it's very easy for – that's where I tend to go anyway, but also so I could have the technology level that I needed to be able to strand her alone but also be able to somehow be on the radio through, you know, kilometers of solid rock. Um, so yeah. it gave me a little bit of room to hand wave some stuff. Um, but I have found in as so Harper Voyager is primarily a science fiction fantasy publisher. They do a little they're dabbling in horror more and more, it feels like, but they still mostly do kind of traditional uh, space opera. They do some really cool stuff with fantasy right now. Um but so a lot of people, I think, picked up the book from the science fiction side and, A, we're not familiar with what a horror book is like. And so we're expecting a horror movie, but written, even though that doesn't really work. And there are two different approaches to doing the same thing. And also they were like, well, this isn't science fiction enough, um, possibly because of the lack of laser guns. I'm not sure, because to <laughs> me, it feels very science fiction because it can't exist in the real world. Um, but apparently some people were they wanted more. Um, which has been an interesting thing to to experience. I mean, I st- obviously also have a lot of fans on the science fiction side as well who are awesome. But yeah, I, I, I've run into more like horror fans who are like, oh, I never read sci-fi, but I love this. than I have science fiction fans who are like, oh, I never read horror, but I love this. Yeah, that's... Go ahead, Shane. 
I was just going to say, I, I, I read both, and, and I love it, too. So you've got all three crowds involved. Well, good. I mean, I grew up reading Dune, mostly, in terms of science fiction. Like, Dune and the Honor Harrington series by David Weber. Oh, yeah. Those those were my, my big formative science fiction. And watching Farscape. Um, and if you I can got... believe it, I hadn't seen Alien until two years ago, which was a travesty that I hadn't, because it's so <laughs> Um, I've seen Aliens forward, but I've still not seen Alien. Really? Yeah. I really like it. It has a lot of the same sort of isolated being stalked -ness. Which is interesting the way you handled that. Um, because, I mean, she's in a cave for this. This is the setting for the majority of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, most of the time, except for in those really intense scenes, um, you know, swimming scenes and things like that, um, it doesn't feel claustrophobic the way I would expect it to. Yeah, um, I, I feel like it would have worn people out if I had made it claustrophobic the whole way through, and so you would have you would have lost also the impact of suddenly it feels like the walls are closing in. Especially because Gyre herself is not is emphatically not claustrophobic. That's why she likes going in caves. So since we're seeing it from her point of view, yeah, she's in a cave, but it's not scary until it's in her mind dangerous. Which yeah, and another aspect of making your character more real. Um, and that's speaking of that. Uh, when it comes to the the relationships, you've you're really good at developing a really super complex relationship and at not just developing those characters, but evolving them logically based on the shit that, go, that they go through and, mm -hmm. you know, the things that they in both in their separate ways suffer together. And, you know, um, so what goes into your process of creating a character? Well, I usually start with the characters, um, which helps because I'm not trying to fit them into the world. I'm trying to make the world fit around them and pull on the stuff in their minds that I want to be pulled on. Um, so I started with, and I didn't just start with Jire or M. I actually started with the feeling of their relationship in the first third of that. I don't trust you. I hate you, but I'm also fascinated by you. And I wanted to see how long I could keep something in that range without it getting boring and then allowing it to change in ways that weren't simple because I didn't want to suddenly they understand each other and now everything's fine and they get along just fine. So I had to come up with a way for them to understand each other and even care about each other while still being at odds with each other. And staying in character. Yeah. And so there were like, there were sections where I absolutely knew what the mood had to be about their for their interaction. And then there were other situations, like particularly the scene where they're reunited right by the waterfall, where I rewrote that probably seven or eight times, top to bottom, to try and get just the right amount of relief on Jire's end and anger on Jire's end and relief and anger on M's end and distrust and desperation and weird affection that they don't understand um, because sometimes it was just too saturn and sometimes 
it was too angry and then you didn't believe that these characters should ever be able to reconcile. And sometimes it just felt flat and boring, even though that is one of, you know, it's an emotional linchpin of the book. So that was that was like one of those ones where I'm running errands, suddenly get a line of dialogue, scribble it down, and I'm just frantically trying to figure out how I need to rewrite it this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you nailed it. Absolutely. Because when you were talking about it just now and talking about the relief, like it's been, I think I read it maybe in the early fall last year. And it's just like bringing back to me, like, you know, I, I felt like I was almost as relieved as Jire was like, oh, thank God there's him again, <laughs> you know, and it's, I just feel like that whole thing was just utterly nailed and, mm-hmm. and the ambiguity of it about what's going on was just that, I mean, it was, it was very, yeah, it was not claustrophobic, but Shane's right. It was just like intense all the way through. Mm-hmm. Which, which is funny that something else that I noticed um, is I had a couple of different people say, oh, it's a really slow burn. And then I read it and I could see what they're referring to, but I don't agree. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. Burn. I try not to read reviews anymore. I learned my lesson the hard way. Um, <laughs> I don't <laughs> necessarily enjoy doing that. Um, but it it seems to me to vary. People's, people's experience of the book varies based on what they expect it to be and what they want out of it. So if they come into it wanting an adventure story but don't want character stuff, well, the character stuff gets really obnoxious really fast because it's taking up space that could be more plot heavy action stuff but then there are other people who really hate the action sequences because they're there for the 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 atmosphere and the character stuff and they don't want to hear about driving bolts into a wall for the 20th time (laughs) um and so it's been really interesting seeing where it lands in terms of who the book seems to be for and who it seems to work for the best because it didn't land where I initially expected it to. It's it's ended up in this interesting overlap of horror readers and YA readers. Oh wow. <laughs> I think because of the character element. Yeah, yeah, I would think so too. And not necessarily teenagers, but people who read YA in general or like read YA but are like there was a whole thing I don't hopefully you're not too familiar with YA Twitter because it is a wild, wild world. But it is, um, there's a whole thing, there was a call for new adult, which would be uh, the same sort of character focused and quick paced writing style that's in a lot of YA, but about characters who were in their early 20s, who were going to college. Um, So that people could kind of keep reading it as they aged and still have characters who were like them. Um, And it never took off. The only way it took off was in a lot of Oh, now they're over 18, so now they can have sex. Um, so that's about where that stalled. But people have said a lot that the Luminous Dead would be considered new adult if new adult actually existed as a category, because Jire and M are technically quite young, and they're still finding out their place in society and in their, you know, how they feel about themselves and their own identities. But at the same time, they are very much not teenagers. And it is very much an, a book for adults. Uh, most definitely. I'd have to agree 100%. And of course, when I say for adults, again, I was reading Dune as a kid. I read Kushiel's Dart when I was 11, which is a whole bunch of BDSM and sociopolitics. So <laughs> not saying teenagers wouldn't enjoy The Luminous Dead, but I don't think it should be like 
on the shelf and handed to them by a teen librarian. No, probably yeah. not. It's I like I read, I, I'm the same. I read Salem's Lot when I was 12 years old, but yeah. it's not a book I would it's, recommend. It's one of those books you should find on your own. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and steal it from your dad. Yeah, I've had I've had two I've had two dads actually come up to me and be like, "Is this book would this book be good for my daughter?" And I'm like, "Well, how old is she?" And they're like, "Oh, she's 12." <laughs> and I'm like, I think one of them like she was nine, and I was like. Gonna say no. <laughs> um, but here's a really cool sticker of the cover of my book that you can give her so she can track it down on her own. Um, but no, you should not buy it for her at this conference. Right. <laughs> you don't mind that I bought your five-year-old a copy of the stand, do you? <laughs> and it's one of those things where if the kid talked to me, I would be like, sure. But it's just this weird thing of like, why is the dad? why does the dad think my book would be a fit for his kid? What? what? What about the creepy hand on the cover? <laughs> or, or, or the title? <laughs> who knows? I could be I could be absolutely maligning these fathers, and they're the kind of, of father who would give their kid Salem's Lot, although questionable. But yeah, it was a very weird experience, and I was like, do, does, does every author get asked this at some point? <laughs> if this if this book is appropriate for children. <laughs> I, I would hope not. There are some authors I really would hope that they don't get asked that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say the cover is a major draw for my two-year-old, though. He is <laughs> he's very intent upon it. He keeps coming back to it, and I'm like, I'm not reading that to you. But, I, you know, I think you're – I like the idea of, like, you can come to it on your own, young man. Yeah, I will not hand it to you, but should you find it on my shelves that you can read, you know, you, you do you, buddy. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. But with, with my kids, it's kind of like um, I let them do what they wanted to do as far as stuff like that went. If they, mm-hmm. felt, if they felt like they were ready to read it, then fucking fine, read it. Yeah, yeah. Well, my my dad let me read pretty much whatever I wanted. Um, my so I found Kushiel's Dark because I was lying about my age on a writing forum board when I was eleven, and everyone on the board, who mostly were middle aged women, were reading it and saying how good it was. So I got my grandfather to buy it for me without telling him what it was. I don't know if he ever figured it out, but it has like a half naked woman on the cover, and it's huge. But so I took it to middle school with me. <laughs> nobody questioned it because they were just happy I was reading a large book. I talked to my dad since he absolutely knew what it was. And he was just like, that's not my business. <laughs> I think he was also giving me Anne Rice to read at that age. So, um, so uh, healthy balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think his idea, although I, I don't know that it was ever really expressed to me, but I think his idea was if she wants to talk about something she reads, she can come and talk to me about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, I just had the burgeoning internet, so I just looked it up myself and learned a lot of interesting things. Gave <laughs> <laughs> so much trouble, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, getting to have a, a computer with an internet connection in your room starting at age twelve. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole. That's a whole type of growing up. <laughs> oh, it's like the internet. The yeah. internet was a hell of a creation for my generation because we never had to have the talk with our kids because they could just fucking look it up online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I they, knew, they knew shit I didn't know. <laughs> I'm sure I still know stuff my dad doesn't know. 
That's funny, Shane. Were your kids like teaching you stuff? Um, always. You'll <laughs> learn. You'll learn that your children will teach you. What some of the most important lessons you'll ever learn. So enough of the seriousness, though. Let's talk about Caitlin's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing that I I really liked about this book is um you know without spoiling it too much for people who haven't read it is there's other characters that are mentioned but one thing that really appealed to me was the way you were able to like keep the story moving and you know keep the reader engaged but when you boil it down it's really about like two characters and their interactions and Mm -hmm. it was something that i really enjoyed too with uh Max Booth the Third's uh, Carnivorous Lunar Activities. It was kind of like a similar book in that oh, regard. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool werewolf story, but yeah, it's kind of similar in the way that it's it's really a lot about two characters and kind of like their interactions with mm-hmm. each other. And I was just wondering, you know, was it difficult, you know, keeping the story with like such a contained focus, even though you had this big world to play with, but to try and carry it through like these two characters or was it relatively easy? So it was challenging, but it wasn't, it wasn't super hard. If that makes sense. Um, Like I've had, especially like right when I sold it, when I would describe it to other, you know, these authors I'm meeting for the first time, they would be like, you did what for your first book? Yeah. <laughs> like it's a full length book and they were like you did that on heart mode but to me I for me I've always it's always been easier for me to work with fewer characters rather than a big cast I don't know how to keep track of a big cast um, and especially because you can't get that sort of intimate depth as easily with a big cast just because of page space um, and I, I wrote a healthy amount of fan fiction in my college days and fan fiction is in a, most times is very dedicated to stories about, about usually two characters, usually leading up to them banging. But it's also, you know, oftentimes a very sort of emotional, thematic exploration of things that get hinted at in canon or had never been mentioned in the show, their farm or whatever. And so that's kind of how I trained was to write two characters exploring something kind of gnarled and twisted up between the two of them um like i wrote i don't know if any of you are video game players or have played the game dishonored but i wrote a novel length story about two characters who never meet in canon yet i'm one of those people um the assassin dowd and the governess callista and i decided to write about them together because dowd is an assassin who likes to kill people and has killed many many people and callista has either, depending on how you play the game, either one or no living relatives whatsoever. Every single one of her family members has died. And it's just a random detail about her character. And I looked at it and went, how would these two characters interact if you did put them in the same room together? Because they both have this really weird, very exaggerated relationship with death that probably has a lot of numbing to it, but also a lot of, like, they've probably come to their own understandings of what it means to for someone to stop existing um i mean they had a plot that they were doing too obviously but that's what the impetus was so writing just about gyre and m was kind of in that same vein but i will say that the first draft and actually pretty much all the drafts of the book up until we sold it 
at the halfway point of the book, you had the slightly spoilery, but you had the scene with Jair and M in the funeral chamber dealing with stuff. And then creepy clone mushroom men showed up and chased them through the cave, chased Jair through the caves for the entire rest of the book. So it just became like, you know, a descent style creature feature because that was where I originally sort of was like, I can't keep people's interest in just these two characters relationship any longer. Got to throw something spicy in. Um, <laughs> and when we sold it to Voyager, it was on the condition that I took the monsters out, which when that... we were asked to, when I was asked to do that, both my agent and I went, what? That's half the book. <laughs> and I was like, do you want M to be a villain then instead of just an antagonist? And he's like, no, no, no. I want you to take the monsters out so we have more time to deal with Jire and M because there's enough there for an entire book and you're cutting it short by throwing the monsters at them. And I would I would contend that there's actually three main characters throughout the book and that's why it works so well and that's because of the fucking fascinating setting that you placed these characters in, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that's why it works so well without the monsters. Yeah, the, um, yeah. I, I, I love creature features, so fuck yeah, give me monsters. But. <laughs> yeah. the, the mushroom men were super cool, and it you know was this whole thematic thing of they look they they made themselves look like various bodies that they found down there, so they looked like like um the dead cavers that had gone before. And so oh M God. is just freaking out constantly <laughs> because she can't understand this and why she's seeing like, spoiler, her dad running around naked, not being able to talk. And the thing is, is they, they were learning how to talk by mimicking speech sounds that they'd heard. So like you would have, you know, a, the body looks like a big dude, but the what voice that that monster had heard was a panicked woman. So you have this mismatch that and like they're not speaking coherent sentences either. So you're just getting these weird screeching noises that kind of start sounding like words halfway through. I God, really like it and I need to find a way to use them somewhere. I was going to say I really yeah. want to read, yeah. really read more about them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so at the end like Jire is grappling with literally a mushroom version of herself. And she's afraid that when M comes down to get her M won't be able to tell which one of them is the real one. Like, cool stuff like that. But but the thing is, is that and this I think this is what you were saying, Shane, is that um my editor noticed that the cave is a character, which I had not noticed yet. And, and not not just the tunnel or not just but the cave itself had opinions and had desires. And so by taking out the mushroom monsters, I got to sort of play with this eldritch creature that is this cave. It may or may not be sentient. I think yeah. it's sentient. Because it comes to, it, it, it be, literally becomes kind of a, and minor spoiler alert, kind of a manipulator itself. Yeah. Uh. And it's it's not always clear whether, like, this is just normal human brains under stress is this fungal infection or is this the cave influencing the people who go down into it because it wants something from them exactly that's what kept going through my head is okay is the cave fucking with her yeah (laughs) well if you this is a very minor thing but i still really like it if you if you have a print copy i don't know if it's in the ebook copy but in the print copy 
the scene divider images are two arrows pointing down. And there is a point in the book at which Jire says something (laughs) regarding what direction she's going to go in. And my hope is that especially like on a reread, those start to feel a little bit more sinister that they're always pointing down. Um, In fact, I got those tattooed on release date because they're super cool and just really nerdy and niche. But um, but yeah, I really liked being able to do that because I think I kind of wanted to do that, but I was afraid it was going to be too weird. No, that's, I mean, that's perfect. And I'm, yeah, that's, I love that. It's a cool little Easter egg. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll and definitely who, have who to... doesn't love a book with a fucking map in it? Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that was a fun one to draw too because I drew it after I wrote the whole book, and I was just praying that it actually made sense that like I wouldn't have to redo half the book to make <laughs> something that obeyed the laws of physics. <laughs> I was very glad when everything connected up okay. You know, when it comes to cavers too, it's kind of kind of easy to fib on the laws of physics because they do some really incredible shit getting That's through gas. That's very true. <laughs> very true. But, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting, too, that, um, you know, like, I'm, I love the story as it is, but I find it kind of interesting that the publisher actually wanted the monsters gone because, like, a lot of times you think that they would be more, they would tend more to go for, you know, quote-unquote splashier things like that yeah but, um, yeah i uh i really like too like shane was saying about like the relationships of the characters that they seem like self-aware and that they're always like changing and like they both understand their flaws mm-hmm. where like i don't feel like you really see that a lot like you'll read books that have complex characters but not too much where they like are internally reflecting on themselves and kind of like understand, you know, that there's things about them that maybe aren't such, aren't so great. Yeah. And I think there's also an element of letting the characters be self-aware and still fuck up despite that, because that's my experience of being alive is that you can understand yourself or tell a narrative about yourself all day long and then still make, extremely questionable choices that fly in the face of that because you're like not touching one particular detail. You're not looking straight at it. Um, so I think it's, it's more believable, you know, you get the internal insight onto, into them so that, you know, they're complex enough, but then they're not perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really love that. I can't, uh, um, I don't think you could enjoy a character that was perfect. I couldn't enjoy a character that was perfect anyway. You know? Yeah, a character that's perfect is more of just like a video camera to me. Yeah, because who the fuck is perfect? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, all the stuff that I've got coming out is just full of people making really bad decisions, but for understandable reasons once you're actually in their heads. Um, but like, you know, particularly self-destructive characters, that's something I keep coming back to, is that characters who knowingly or not are completely screwing themselves over and are taking some amount of pleasure in the fact that they're doing that 
because they're like, fuck you. If the world sucks, I'm going to at least take some amount of control and I'm going to make my, my life suck in a particular way that I control. <laughs> how I choose to fuck it up, not how you choose to fuck it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's a great uh, segue. Is there is what can you i know there's a lot of you know secretive and unnamed things <laughs> <laughs> what whatever you feel comfortable imparting to us about the stuff that you've got coming up we we'd love to hear it yeah so um the closest thing that comes out that i can talk about already is uh, i mentioned earlier a novella gothic horror novella called yellow jessamine um it's about a woman who runs a shipping empire in a in a country that is completely falling to pieces and she's kind of clinging on to whatever scraps of power and wealth she can keep. But she's also a very paranoid person who really, really likes creative botany. She makes a lot of poisons and sort of all these things from her past and her current situation kind of come crashing together when something comes to the city that she lives in on one of the ships that she owns. Um, And things get really bizarre and stalkery from there. So that comes out. Uh, I don't have a specific date and it's not available for pre-order yet, but it comes out in September of this year from Neon Hemlock and Neon Hemlock is going to be launching a Kickstarter for pre-orders particularly on February 20th. So if you're interested, you can um, look them up on Twitter. They're at Neon Hemlock. There's three other novellas that are coming out this year. They're all queer horror of some kind. Um, I believe some of them involve like werewolf punk bands and stuff. So it's, it's a, it's a good range. Um, and yeah, I'm super excited for that one to come out because the, the main character of that is a character I've had kicking around in my head since I was 14. So she's got a lot of attendant angst and just like, she's just a walking disaster. Um, and it was really fun to actually just to get to, to dig into her and just be as, expansive and weird and like purple prose poetic and Byron on the hill, whatever with her as I wanted to. So super excited about that. And then um, in the fall of 2021, I have a book called the death of Jane Lawrence coming out from St. Martin's press again, no pre-order links quite yet, but that one is a combo of um, golden dawn style magic, theoretical mathematics, creepy house on the hill Victorian era surgery, and again, characters making highly questionable decisions, particularly involving the use of cocaine. Um, so, um, but they're both more Victorian esque, uh, not sci fi at all, much more ornate and magical and dark. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That is- and I- Go ahead, Laurel. No, that that was I was just fangirling. Please, please proceed uh, with an actual question. <laughs> uh, it wasn't really a question. I was going to say the same thing. Like I look forward to both of those. And you said uh, it sh- the Kickstarter should be like February twentieth or so. Yeah, yeah. And we're also going to be doing a whole bunch of sort of Twitter chats about various topics um, with authors that go beyond just um, the ones who are being published with Neon Hemlock this year. So I know that mine is, or the one I'm mainly going to be involved in is called uh, Going Beyond or Expanding the Gothic. And I know one of the participants is Jeanette Ng, who wrote this fantastic, really fucked up fairyland gothic book called Under the Pendulum Sun. 
which is about a missionary who goes to fairyland to try and convert them to Christ. And things get weird. <laughs> so highly recommend that as well. Um, but yeah, and it's, so it's going to be pre-orders. There might be, I think there are going to be some rewards. Um, I know that I'm going to be releasing some really cool art to promote it. Um, I've been, I've been very lucky to commission some cool artists. This is a very art heavy book somehow, which is really cool. I was not expecting that, but it's delightful. Um, yeah, that that sounds awesome. And uh, too, like that other book that you had mentioned, I want to check that out too about the punk rock werewolves. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Now, is Neon Hemlock kind of like a newer publisher? It is super I, new. Okay, because I had heard about it. Um, I think through your Twitter about uh, the novella you were doing, and I was curious if they were like brand newer. But that's that's pretty they, exciting. They are pretty brand new. They've done a couple um, chapbooks and zines, and they are having a collection called Glitter and Ashes, which is about you know queer punk post apocalyptic stuff. Um, based out of Maryland, but the people involved know what they're doing, so. I'm really, really excited that, that I got a chance to work with them. And not just because Hemlock figures in my book. Well, that's pretty cool, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they they sound like a great publisher. Like, pretty much uh, every every book that you've mentioned, yours and some of the other ones they're working on, like, I, I made a note of it because I want to check all of them out. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that... That was uh, that's pretty cool. And one thing I wanted to ask you, because earlier you had mentioned that you were on like a writing message board. I think you said you were like 11. (laughs) So have you always kind of been like involved in the writing community in that way? And like, how did you discover like those writing message boards and what like attracted you to stick around? Um, I've been, I've been in and out of writing communities. A lot of the time I've spent kind of by myself. I particularly in college was like, well, writing will never make me any money and it's a bad waste of time. So I better get realistic. Um, so I just kind of, I retreated in on that. My guess is that message board when I was 11, I probably found through Neopets. Oh, That's I remember. where I hung out most of the time. I was part of a couple of roleplay communities. Most of the time, I actually did internet-ridden roleplay. That was my main outlet and how I, I think, learned how to write for an audience because you're always writing to get a particular reaction out of whoever you're writing with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of gone in and out. I've always been writing. I think I started writing actively, like, with intent when I was about eight, and I've taken a couple short breaks, but I always keep coming back to it. Um, and now I'm part of a, a small writing group of other science fiction, fantasy, horror authors. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's pretty cool. And I know exactly what you mean about like, uh, that's kind of interesting that you said that, you know, writing for an audience back then, mm-hmm. um, like for message boards and stuff, because it seems like message boards, I don't I don't even know if like people still use those or not like it seems like now it's mainly like twitter and stuff but yeah I, there are, I, I think there's still some but they're pretty much you have to know where they are yeah and i feel like that was kind of like a a good opportunity for people because like you said you're writing for an audience but still you could 
you could kind of remain a little bit anonymous. So it's not like yeah. as scary as like, you know, a live workshop, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm ter- I don't think I, I took some writing classes in high school and I've never taken any other writing classes or workshops because I'm just terrified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. I've only taken like a few uh, college courses and those were mainly in like creative nonfiction but yeah the, mm-hmm. the first time I had to do a group critique where like everyone reads it and then they're like okay we're just gonna launch into like uh, comments about your story it's mortifying yeah I'm, I've always <laughs> been more of a person who like I pick particular people that I yeah. trust and I you know people who they don't just tell me that I'm great they'll give me usable feedback and they'll tell me when something's not working um but I need to like know the other person so I can tell them like, Hey, back off. I'm having a bad day right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and to have it in an email format too is, I mean, that's just my thing. I don't think I'd want to like have people saying it at my face. Yeah. yeah. And I, I get that that's like a skill that a lot of people um, find that is very helpful to them in their careers. And I should probably develop it at some point. Um, but I mean, when I wrote the luminous dead, I, knew nothing about publishing and I didn't write it with the intent of trying to get it published. I wrote it to see if I could still write original characters after my stint in fan fiction. And then I got to the end of it, realized it was good, had a small panic attack and then started researching like the whole agent process. Um, (laughs) So like I kind of, because if I had been looking straight at it, I would have, I would have talked myself out of it and been too scared to do it. Um, I'm glad you didn't, because it, yeah. it turned out good for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> I've given quite a few people nightmares, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that, because, uh, like, the other day, the three of us were talking in, like, a chat, and we were talking, like, you know, Desert Island books, and I I believe it was Shane who said he would take uh, The Luminous Dead as his and I was like, you know, I really love that book, but uh, being on a desert island by myself, <laughs> I was like, I think that book would really fuck me up. You're gonna start hearing someone talking to you, like <laughs> yeah. go in the water. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I really love that book, but I think that would be a bad idea for me. <laughs> yeah, it's like in retrospect, that's not a great plan. <laughs> but yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, too, I know you gave us one example, but if you don't mind me asking, like you said, you uh, wrote fan fiction. Was it like video games or did you do like movies as well? Books or video games? It was it was pr- like I think 98 percent of it was Dragon Age or Dishonored. And that's, that's- was that the kind of setup where you would, sh- you know, share that with other people or was that? Yeah, for I, I, I put it on um, archive of our own. And I had a Tumblr at the time, and I, did, I never had a lot of readers. Although I had some fairly dedicated ones who now have my book because I didn't I didn't make it um, a huge secret on my fandom Tumblr that I had a book coming out. So that's been interesting, is seeing people kind of follow me. Um, but yeah, it was mostly a lot of stuff was just a Tumblr, and it's been lost to the waves of time or me deleting it. But I still have some stuff on Ao3 if you know what to look for. Um, just because I'm still really proud of that work. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've listened to, like, other podcasts and stuff with other writers, and 
ironically enough, from like all different genres, horror, crime, and other genres, where, you know, a lot of them said that that's how they kind of started their writing career was doing fan fiction. So I think it's one of those kind of like, I guess, overlooked sort of beginnings for writers and like how they get started. I mean, it has the benefit of it makes it less stressful and more fun to log several hundred thousand words of practice. Um, That's how I looked at it like that and written role play between the two of them. I probably wrote three million plus words of various types of narratives and characters before I ever wrote The Luminous Dead. So, you know, it looks like, okay, The Luminous Dead came out of nowhere because I didn't have any short stories published and all this other stuff, and I didn't have, you know, an MFA or something. But I had been spending every, every, like, most of my time from age 11 to age 27 writing constantly, but in a low-pressure environment. Laurel cheated like that, too. She published (laughs) before she published a story. (laughs) I still haven't yet to write a short story. I mean, I wrote short stories when I was a teenager because I had to for my high school writing class. And I I wrote short story length things in fan fiction. But that's very different because the world's already there for you and the characters are already understood. So it's it, it doesn't translate well. And honestly, short story writing is a skill that blows my mind. I don't know how people do it. It does me, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot, pretty much any format. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Rich. No, you're good. I was just going to say I'm I I don't know how for like any format they have their challenges. That's all I was going to say. Yeah, I just think it's hard to do that arc. Like you said, I mean, if it's if it's fan fiction, the world's already there. Mm-hmm. And the character kind of, you know, the characters already have at least a sketch in your head even if you take them in a different direction. But yeah. Yeah, the short story arc is something that is is pretty challenging, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, like, going from novel to some novellas, that wasn't too hard because it was pretty much, like, just get rid of any semblance of a subplot, and then you're about at a novella length. (laughs) Like, think of it as a movie instead of as, like, a TV show, and you're good. Um, But, yeah, going below that, I don't know. I just, I guess I like to hear myself talk too much. Well, it's, you know, it's having the room to stretch out, you know, and, and do all and the it, character stuff and do all because, I mean, it takes a while to do the intimacy type stuff I do. Um, yeah. You have to establish yeah. a lot before you can start challenging it and playing with it. And you are both you and Laurel both are intensely, intensely character driven authors. Mm-hmm. So I can see why it would be a lot more difficult to write the shorter stuff. Oh, yeah, it's I mean, it's hard. I'm terrible at even cutting it down. Obviously, I have these monstrous. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, there's development. There's dialogue. <laughs> I want to lose it. <laughs> I will say it is very freeing when I have an editor who like starts pointing out stuff that I can cut and then I start seeing stuff I can cut. And then it like when I cut certain lines or paragraphs, suddenly the idea I was spending so much time trying to communicate is actually better communicated and it's clearer. And I'm just like, Oh, it's magic. Um, but I kind of, I have to do that work first before I can like take away the parts that don't matter. I can't, I, I definitely overwrite and then have to prune down. Yeah. And that's one editor who can do that too is just utterly priceless. That's I gotta say the editor for yellow Jessamine Dave ring is fucking fantastic. It has been a joy working with him on that 
on that project. And part of it's just because he's he's just as goth as I am, and he's just like, yeah, can I can you get her whole skull in there? I want to see the whole skull. <laughs> and I was like, but, but over the years, Roots would have broken it up, and he's like, nah, whole skull or nothing. <laughs> cool. Give me the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and, you know, and he had a, a question of like, well, you know, when here you say that she sees her mom's bones, but you say that, you know, she was interred earlier and why? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. So when you have a mausoleum for a rich family, you can't keep adding rooms. So when you put someone new in, you just push the old bones out of the way. Like, that's that's a real thing that happens. And he was like, oh, it's gross. I love it. <laughs> Signed Shut off on Lady, keep it in. It's a man after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're talking getting, there's a particular, we have some chapter header art that, um, my tattoo, he commissioned my tattoo artist to draw, which is pretty sweet. And I think finding I'm just getting tattooed on release day or close to. Apparently, that's becoming my new thing that I get. A, I get a book related <laughs> tattoo on release day. Um, <laughs> so I probably need to start like, making them smaller if I'm going to actually have a long career. <laughs> I keep that's, that's a great tradition, yeah. But you might want to go with thumbprints. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it does. The nice thing is, it keeps your mind way off of it. Like, I would have been a wreck, I think, on the release day for The Luminous Dead if I didn't have, like, a two-hour hangout with my tattoo artist. She's awesome, and we we hang out a lot. Um, Not a lot. Like, we have yet to get dinner outside of the tattoo studio, but we take our time with our sessions. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, that whole time I didn't check my phone. I was focused more on the fact that my chest fucking hurt. It was great. And then I had to pay attention to the um, aftercare. (laughs) So you go go and flick some intentional pain on yourself rather than have to deal with the stress of the book release. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. And then I went to do a, a, um, a like a release event at Powell's immediately after. <laughs> Richard, Luckily, I saw I saw the endorphins going, so it was fine. But. Richard Thomas wrote a book in which every time his hitman killed somebody, he went and got a new tattoo. Mm-hmm. So. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) And that's kind of cool that you said that you have like the cool, like chapter art and stuff that, you know, makes for a good tattoo. I think there should be more like a literary design that easily translates to tattoos. (laughs) I I should also, I should actually shout out the name of my tattoo artist because she's again, fucking awesome. Um, her name's Carla Yvette. She's got a shop called Dire Wolf here in Portland and she is fantastic. Whole shop's awesome. Um, You're here in Portland? Portland, Oregon, yep. Yep, me too. Right oh, on. hi. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, Dire Wolf's right on Southeast Broadway, or Northeast Broadway, at like 19th. I'm over on about 85th and Flayville. Oh, yeah, I'm out in Beaverton. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't afford to stay in town anymore, but... I lived out in Aloha for years and years and years, but um, this is my this is my hometown. I don't see myself leaving again. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm, God, I've been here since 2008, so it's a good it's a much much uh, easier place to live than a lot of places in the country. Not 2008, but... 2012. God, when I 2008, I just graduated from high school. That would have been weird. I was like, oh, it has not been 12 years that I've been here. No, it's been, it's been like eight years. Um, but still. 
I, I've now been long enough here to actually complain about the weather. <laughs> See, I'm like, one of those weirdos where uh, I like, I've always wanted to like go there because I'm like, I, I think I would like the weather there. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what people don't get is that it, we have, we have a wet season and a dry season. Yep. So yeah, it's wet from like mid September through usually like end of March, and it's when I say wet, it is disgusting. You, it, it's not just that you don't see the sun <laughs> because the sun sets at four thirty. It's you don't see the sun because the clouds don't break. But then from like June through the end of August, it does not rain at all. And the last several years, at least, but I've heard that it's been like this for a long time. It's like eighty every day with a couple weeks that are above a hundred. Yeah, it, it's no one's been, ready for that. Ever. It's been hot, hotter than fuck the last few years, and it's not <laughs> normal here. <laughs> yeah, the, the dryness is normal. The hotness is not. But the rain thing, like today earlier, the kind of rain Caitlin's talking about. You walk outside, and I couldn't see across the street because the rain's coming down so fucking hard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we don't get thunderstorms, which I think just sucks. Like, if we're gonna get that much rain, we should get thunderstorms, but. For whatever I, reason, we don't get them. Yeah, we get screwed on all the all the extreme weather. We do get really good chanterelle mushrooms, though. Yeah, That's yeah, cool. we do. <laughs> My husband was working out by the coast this September, October, and he would just bring home like five pound bags every week. Uh, yeah, they are definitely definitely abundant over there. <laughs> they are delicious. Just fried them up in butter and froze them, so now I have chanterelles all year. Rich and I are interestingly working on a story that had its yeah. origins in talking about uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms on the Oregon coast. <laughs> um, oh, and yeah. then there's, there's, so the thing I can't talk about that comes out early this summer, I will say that it is set in Portland. <laughs> That's right like on. all I can really say, and it is horror. It's novella length. But I was really excited when I got okayed. It's a tie-in thing. And when I, I got okayed to write in Portland, because I got to put in a lot of opinions about downtown and about TriMet. Um, <laughs> and I had this was this is a thing that only people who have been who lived in like southeast inner southeast Portland will get. But I made a reference to the goat blocks being demolished, and my <laughs> editor tried to take it out because I think he thought I invented it. And I was like, no, nope. you need to leave Real that in because thing. <laughs> it is very important that they took those goats away from us and put yep. these really weird, stupid apartment buildings there instead. Oh, that, yeah, that makes me really mad over there oh, in the Lance area. I mean, they're fine, apparently. Like, they still live fairly nearby, and you can still, like, I think they, they're part of a herd. I don't know if, they, if they've if they been added to one of those herds that you can hire to clear brush. They're actually they're actually just a block north of where they were. Really? Maybe two, maybe two yeah. Okay. You have to go look. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I used to live, like, right near there, so... So we have these, we have these <laughs> goats that have been being moved around the city for years now. They used to be called the Belmont goats. Yeah. Um, and they're just they're just there to live, you know. But pe- it, people go they're very see cute. them. Yep. I think I, I pet one of them once because one of their um, caretakers was there and let me pet one. But yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah, they're but fun. It's, such, it's also such a stereotypical Portland thing. <laughs> <laughs> Very much <Yep>. so. <laughs> um. It's like, you think Portland's not weird? Do you want to go see our goats? <laughs> <laughs> and you want to have a bunch of CBD soda while you're at it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the weirdest thing. But I got to stop was... at the weed shop on the way, so. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised there isn't a weed shop named after the goat blocks at this point. Hey, that's a great idea. Right? <laughs> if, only, if only we hadn't dropped the market out of weed in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, no <Right>. shit. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's a winner for me because it's a hell of a lot cheaper. But... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the good news, they grew too much again this year. Oh, good. <laughs> Are they allowed to, like, use, like... They've, they've switched to being able to use credit cards at this point, haven't they? Most uh, of the dispensaries? Some of them do for a fee, yeah, but most of them, they just have an ATM. Yeah. Well, I know for a while, too, most most banks wouldn't even let them have an account there. Yeah. And so, like, they would literally have to keep all their cash on site and send it over to the tax department at OLCC once a week. Like, that, yeah, that shit got robbed a lot. With, <laughs> so oh, yeah. Like, and the- it was like, how did no one think this through? And it's like, it, well, it's the OLCC who set this up, so of course they didn't think this through. I um, saw it coming, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, just what I knew was the OLCC. I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. So the OLCC, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, is the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, which fixes all the price of booze in the state and a lot, determines what booze can be imported to the state. And, and make sure like really That sounds yeah, pretty hard. terrible. They, they also part of their job is making uh, waiters and bartenders lives fucking hell. Oh, yeah. They do these nasty sting operations. Yeah. Um, and it's like the first time you fail, both the business and the waiter is fined. I think it's something like $5,000 each. It is. Yeah. Ridiculous. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. A little <laughs> bit. I mean, the one nice thing about having an OLCC, and I'm sure your listeners are delighted to, to hear the <laughs> opinionating. Our talk show opinionating. Um, right. Is that it, is it if you're looking for a really like like a particular type of scotch, you can search on their website to see what store has it. Oh fuck! Because I didn't all, know that. No, it's like the one good thing because all the stores have to they have to all have the same prices and they all have to report what stock they have on a regular basis to the OLCC. So the OLCC just made that database public, so oh, you right can on. see without going to the liquor store, if they have like a bala Oban that you want or something like that. Um, I've used it for, for particular gifts that I needed. To, I wanted to track down specific bottles for. Um, yeah. Shane's world just expanded exponentially. <laughs> <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> He's like, what? I can search for booze for my house. You can't get it delivered. But you can, you can get weed delivered, but you can't get booze delivered. I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure how that one works, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know how that works either, because I mean, technically, they're both federally regulated. Yeah, so. but I know that I've seen things for weed delivery around town, and like yeah. not just like someone's name on a phone post, like actual billboards <laughs> for, for, for companies that pay taxes. You guys um, should see this. You should see this city. They're all over the place. Every other billboard is a weed billboard. <laughs> what's amazing oh. is like you go out of Portland, you're thinking, okay, the rest of Oregon's pretty, pretty conservative, whatever. But no, every single town in Oregon yeah. has at least like two weed shops. <laughs> the most podunk, cracker, redneck fucking town <laughs> in the state has two or three weed shops. <laughs> but none of them, none of them carry any glass. Like, yeah. the glass stops are still the glass shops, and they're still separate. I don't get that at all. I don't understand either, but... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now that everyone knows the current state of uh, Oregon weed... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> 
this has been this has been Caitlin and Shane's old home week. <laughs> you know what? It's funny because I've always wanted to visit out there, and like I'm just sitting there, I'm like listening to it, and I'm like, this is kind of cool. <laughs> it's like I'm there. I have, a, I have a relative who, whenever they visit me, our first stop leaving the airport is a dispensary. Oh yeah. Someone someone calls says they're coming to town. Hey, is there a weed shop close to you? <laughs> There's one out here that I really want to go to just for the name, and it's called Electric Lettuce. <laughs> that is awesome. I've heard of I've heard of that. I have not been there, but I love that name. Such a good name. It'd be a great band name. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I mean, in true Portland fashion, I'm currently drinking the cider that I have a very large tall boy can of is blueberry bourbon basil. That's definitely Oregon. And it is a team up with Blue Star Donuts. That sounds good. It is good. <laughs> hey Shane, you think you could smuggle some of that through FedEx for us? Um, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll let Caitlin do that. <laughs> <laughs> and do some of the mints you can buy out here. Yeah. What's that? Was that the... Oh, maybe I heard it wrong. Did you say there was, like, the special type of mints you could buy out there? Yeah, they have, yeah, you can... They have um, regulated edibles. Starting with chocolate, went to, like, gummy bears and lollipops. Now they have mints that just look like Altoids. Yeah, we had some of those mints for a while. I liked those. They're mostly they're mostly a high CBD, yeah, low THC yeah. mints. When you get edibles that are high THC, um, what happens is you fuck yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have the traditional. Oh well, I'm not feeling anything, so I'm just gonna eat three times as much and see what. <laughs> exactly. Well, that well that fourth of a thing didn't fucking do anything for me. I'm gonna eat the rest. <laughs> well, 20 minutes later, you're part of the sofa. Yeah, my friend Vada brought me, back when it was only in, in Washington, she brought me a um, infused honey stick, but didn't tell me that one honey stick is not one serving. Oh, my God. So I was asleep for about 20 hours. <laughs> It was delightful. I felt so refreshed. But um, I, I kind of wanted to have the whole day. <laughs> have no day. I kind of wanted to enjoy being high. That's <laughs> I keep hearing that Kentucky is like ostensibly getting really close to passing it. And we actually, the firm that I work for does a lot of um, hemp work now. And so like it's, I'm just looking at the future of all of my fellow Kentuckians operating this way because you know, <laughs> we're, we're, a lot of us are conservative rednecks. And I'm like, how's this going to go over? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I know, a lot of, I know a lot of conservatives who smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. They just don't want anyone else to have it. You know what's amazing is that people who swore all their lives, oh, I'd never touch that evil drug. The second it was legal, they were the first ones in the fucking oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I will say, worst thing ever, the people who um, 
who work at the dispensaries, they're, some of them call themselves bud tenders. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. They've been talking about that uh, up where I live. I live in New York State, and I don't know when they're going to do that, but, man, you can't. You can't throw a rock without hitting a place that sells like CBD products. Oh my god, yeah, it just exploded. <laughs> yeah. And those are the places that explode into the hundred thousand weed shops you'll have in your town when it gets mm. legalized. <laughs> you know what? I almost want to make a career change even though you guys both hate it. And maybe it's because we're not as experienced with it, but I find the name Bud Tender hilarious. <laughs> well, okay, so, so here, like, you can have, you can hire a Bud Tender for your wedding. Yeah. So your yep. out-of-state guests can get a concierge experience. There's a lot of hotels, too, that you could, like, buy a package where they will give you weed, like a couple of pre-rolled joints and some stuff, but you're not allowed to smoke it at the hotel. So, and you're not allowed to smoke it in public. <laughs> so I don't know where they expect you to smoke see, it. That would that, be perfect for me because I'll just go crash at Shane's house. <laughs> see, I, I never understand that not allowed to smoke it in public part. I think about it all the time while I'm walking down the street hitting my vape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what we were we were walking somewhere near the Beaverton Transit Center and there was a there was a guy it was like cigar sized. Like a cigar-sized joint, and you could just smell it from like two blocks away, and it was just called pot. Like living his best life. That's it's amazing. A... I've never seen something that big. Was that you, Shane? <laughs> uh, it, it could have been. There's, there's a weed shop down the street from me that sells this thing called the twenty-dollar blunt. So, uh, and it's, it is a fucking cigar. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> well, this is this is the first time we've had this conversation on the show. It's been awesome. <laughs> it's like half literary podcast, half like you know weed guidebook. <laughs> uh, next week we'll be talking about hashish and. If my stepson ever listens to this talk, <laughs> that's it. He's gone. He's like, he moved to Portland. <laughs> By the time you read this, I'll already be in Portland. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, Shane, I know this is like way off topic, but was a. Uh, was weed legal there when uh, the Stoker Con was there? No, no, it was still years away. Uh, I was yeah, just curious. Like the summer of 2015. Yeah. Which yeah. I know because my wedding was one week before that. I guess we're not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we weren't here to see you, okay? We were here for the week. There were <laughs> to Washington State before the, before the wedding. I started members of the wedding party. <laughs> Allegedly. But uh, ironically, that's actually a pretty good segue. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was going to ask you, um, I, I know that it's been 
nominated for a lot of other awards, but what was it like when you found out the Luminous Dead was on the preliminary uh, Stoker ballot? He has actually not been nominated for, I don't think, anything else. Oh, except, I, for the, except, except for the good the Goodreads choice. Oh, uh, I I might have misread. I saw like a tweet where he said it was like eligible for I oh, think yeah, like, Nebula. Yeah, it's the same thing okay. where it's, it's actual nominations are closing um, on yeah. the fifteenth, just like the Stoker nominations are. But, but yeah, no, I woke up to that preliminary ballot announcement and just sort of started screaming and didn't stop for about three days. Um, <laughs> I was not yeah. expecting that, and it was the coolest thing possible. And I was a little bit sad that I didn't have plans to go to England <laughs> to see <Kate. laughs> Um But yeah, so now I'm just now it's the fun thing of just sort of living in anxiety until what is it the 23rd when they announce the next round? Excuse me. I, I, I'm not sure, actually. I was I check every once in a while because they don't really say I don't think they're just kind of like, here's the. Yeah, they're just kind of like, here's the preliminary ballot, and then it's almost like it's up to you to keep checking back to see. Like, yeah, I know they I, do the press release, but... Yeah, so that'll that'll be interesting, especially because at the time, I now have I have fixed this, I was not an HWA member. So, like, the actual list was not posted publicly for, like, two hours after apparently the email blast went out. So I had all of these people like tweeting at me to congratulate me. And I'm just like, is, is this real? I can find no proof of this. What was I even nominated or sorry. What was I put on the preliminary ballot for? Um, I've, I've read the, the etiquette rules of (laughs) when when you are allowed to call yourself a nominee, which I am not. So, Yeah, I always I always struggle with that because like I you know I doubt the HWA gives a shit what I have to say, but like I always struggle with that because there's like all these like super specific rules. Like you're on the preliminary ballot, but you can't call yourself a nominee until you make the final ballot. (laughs) From the perspective of reigning in publishers, from slapping stuff on because because so like the the Nebulas and the Hugos. And I suspect several other things, but I don't know quite yet. I'm still learning the landscape. They don't release. So they would consider the preliminary ballot the long list. And they don't do two rounds of voting. So the long list is internal and it's just who are the top five. So they're the top five that become the actual nominees and then who are the next five. So, but you don't find out until after the award has been given if you were on the long list at all. You only know if you're a nominee. So it's kind of weird. So like that, in this, it's sort of reverse where you know ahead of time that you could potentially become a nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I suspect you can probably say I was long listed for because, I, you know, if, if, if the same thing happened for Nebulas, I could say I was I was long listed for the Nebulas and whatever. Um, but, yeah, I'm still still learning all of the uh, the rules and etiquette involved. But I I do have a fancy dress plan just in case. Okay. I suck so bad at etiquette. I don't think I'll ever be a member of the HWA. Yeah, I think you burned that bridge a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a little bit critical. Just a tiny bit. But before we get into too much trouble, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that... well, let's move on quick before I screw myself. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> 
but yeah, um, yeah, definitely a congratulations on that. Um, I know we're all pulling for you on that one. Thank you. Yep, and uh, I guess uh, we'll wrap up here and uh, let you get going. But um, Shane Laurel, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, I or, still have to fuck a little more. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, first 24-hour episode of the Inkheart's <laughs> I'm good, but uh, The Luminous Dead is out now. If you haven't read it, you want to unfuck that yesterday. Um, and Yellow Jessamine, sometime in the fall of 2020. The Death of Jane Lawrence, fall of 2021. And all that other shit Caitlin mentioned that my lame brain can't remember. Oh, it's all the stuff that, that like, is not announced yet, so you're fine. Right, right. <laughs> the, but the, also, the, uh, the mysterious Portland thing that comes out in June-ish. Right. Oh, that, that was something I was going to say just real quick. Off, <laughs> is that I'm always excited to hear a story written in Portland because it's so rare to have that happen. Yeah, and it, yeah, I was excited to do it. I was a little bit like, oh gosh, do I know the city well enough? And then I just found myself screaming opinions on the page, and I'm like, yeah, I know the city well enough. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, and also um, keep your ears and your eyes peeled, and we'll make sure you guys hear when that Kickstarter goes live too. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, Laura, how about you, Laurel? No, I'm I'm good. I've just been kind of soaking it all in, and uh, you know, I'm gonna sound fancy next time I talk to people because I'll know all about Portland and and all of you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Laurel, you're now an honorary bud tender. <laughs> I cannot wait to tell my kid he's gonna be yeah. for the first time ever. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Caitlin, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And is there anything else you uh, want to say to our listeners? I'm, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, you can find me on Twitter at C-S-E-E underscore Starling or on my website, which is just CaitlinStarling.com. Um, like we said, way at the top of the episode, there are super cool body modification pictures there. And some knitting. If you're into knitting, I, I like randomly dumped my knitting portfolio on there too, just so I didn't have to run two websites. So um, you can also find out more about Yellow Jessamine or and the death of Jane Lawrence and, and the Luminous Dead if you hop on over there. And you can look at pictures of the A Human po- Project that Caitlin was talking about too. Mm-hmm. So all done. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, thanks again, Caitlin, and uh, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll catch you later. Good night, thanks, Caitlin. Good night. <laughs> Bye. Good night. Caitlin, great you talking. rock. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thanks.